The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. The final project is a very critical part of this class. Okay, So I'll, I'll emphasize this. The assignments are simple and straightforward. If you're struggling with it, you should talk to me or Ankit or Professor Mukaigawa or Professor Oliveira, and we are here to help you. Okay? Uh, but the final project is really, really critical. Okay? Um, the project has to be novel. It has to be something nobody has done before. Okay? Or at least somebody has done it the way you are doing it. Okay? And so the problem statement has to be novel. Its execution has to be beautiful, and its impact—you know—you should you should reach some results. You should show that you know you are solving it, or you know it's, it's possible to evaluate what you have done. Um, and we have multiple stages to uh, get you prepared to for this uh, final project. You have to come with at least three ideas for a final project. Okay. And this is very critical. If you go to the wiki on uh, the camera culture uh, group page, we have a whole section on how to come up with great ideas and you know how to brainstorm and so on. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, on our Stellar page, we also have a, a whole presentation on how to come up with new ideas. There are six ways of coming up with uh, new ideas. And you should start setting up a meeting with me or any one of these people. Uh, in the next week. Uh, if you're in the building, it's easy. You can just uh, catch me. Usually between 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. is the best because there are no officially scheduled meetings. You can just come to my office uh, and we can chat. Uh, if you're not taking this class for credit and you're a listener, uh, I would really appreciate if you will pitch an idea for a project. Okay? Uh, and we'll have an opportunity to do that on uh, October 30. Okay, so just come up here and say, I have this crazy idea. If somebody wants to work on this, you know, let's let's team up. Okay. Um, and then I want you to send uh, a very simple email uh, with after discussing these three ideas, uh, I or Ankit or other, our other two mentors will help you narrow down to maybe the top two ideas or maybe the top one idea. Um, and then for that, you need to send. Uh, these five things. All right. And then on November six, we will do a three-minute presentation. So you, everybody knows in the class the kind of problem you are attacking. Maybe there's some synergy between multiple projects. You can, you know, help each other find software or talk to people or get some equipment. Um, and then final proposals are due uh, two weeks before uh, the actual uh, final presentation. Okay? And by then, you should have some initial experiments. Remember, your final assignment is due on November 13th. So you can't start thinking about your final project after the final assignment is due. You need to start thinking now. Okay? And at this stage, it doesn't have to be completely hashed out. That's why you're in the class. We'll, 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 we'll help you think through that. And then December 4th, the class is finished. You finish really early. Because as I said, um, we meet on Fridays and uh, uh, Thursday after this, so 
December 10th is the last day of classes. So we are one of the first classes to finish. Uh, unfortunately, November 27th is a Thanksgiving break. Um, and so which means we don't have a class uh, just before our final projects to discuss and, and do other things. But I will be available throughout that time um, and you know we can we can help you if you need equipment, you need cameras, you need software, whatever we can we can we can try to help you. Any questions on uh, final projects? Uh, and Mike was saying that it might be it might be good to know you know what students did last year uh, in in. Uh, as, as, as uh, class projects and how they decided and so on. So Matt Hirsch is going to come and talk today about his Pi screen and that would be a good way to ask him how did he get started and how did it become a secret paper. Alright, so today we're going to talk about light fields, to finish up the light fields and then talk about uh, cameras for HCI. So uh, we said there are basically three ways of uh, coming of capturing a light field. Uh, can somebody tell me in two sentences uh, what's a light field? In a real camera. In a real, inside a camera? What is it? How do you represent it mathematically? A representation, just a representation. So it's a, how many dimensions does it have? It's four-dimensional, although the world seems to be three-dimensional. The appearance is actually four-dimensional. And where do we get those uh, four dimensions from? We have a lens. And we have a sensor. So in flat land, it's just two-dimensional. The thing on the wall. Where are the two dimensions coming from? The X dimension is easy. That's one dimension. And the other dimension is? That's this dimension. Okay. So if you connect any two points, that indicates the direction of the ray. And so in flat line, the light field or the ray space is two dimensional. In the real world, in three, it's four dimensional because your sensor is going to be x and y, and your lens is going to have theta. So that's the light field that we care about. And why do we care about light field so much? What is so unique about light field? If we capture a light field, we have captured almost, I mean, everything that we can capture. Exactly. It's a complete representation of light that's entering the lens. So anything that you could ever imagine doing with changing focus, changing zoom, uh, changing aperture size, all those things are already captured in this four-day representation. And from that, you can do anything you want. And if you cannot do it using mechanically changing camera parameters, you cannot do it with light if you, Sorry, if you cannot do it with light field, you cannot do it by changing mechanical camera parameters. So it's a very, very powerful way. Of, uh, and as we saw earlier, the light field also represents so given that this is so important, photographers never talk about capturing light, they always talk about capturing light. 
this is that's why this is computational for our computational computational because we're trying to understand this relationship. And this will allow us to build full camera toys and also you know, create algorithms that support. Uh, okay, so given that, uh, what are the three ways we can we can capture this? One is using uh, the lens that array that we saw earlier. So we're just going to put. All you want to do is right now at this pixel, a ray from here and a ray from here, they converge, and any variation in the radius along those rays is lost. And we want to make sure that we can capture this and this individual. So, what are some ways we can do it? Instead of putting the sensor here, we can put the sensor a little bit back and then put here a bunch of pimples. And the light reaches here, too bad, you can't do anything about it. But the light reaches here, and it will be mapped to different pixels. So if I have theta equals 0, theta equals plus uh, 3, and sorry, plus 4, and theta equals minus 4, then I have captured for this given x. I have captured, let's say this is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. Then I have captured here 3, 1, minus 4. And here I have captured 3, 1, Right? And so on. So I have captured the whole vector. But of course I have given up more. Resolution. I have given up resolution because for x equals 3.5, you know, they're just opaque film. So that light is lost, and I want to capture it. So if I had, say, uh, here, let's say I had 1,000 pixels, so let's 900 pixels okay, on the sensor, uh, and I'm going to chop theta into 9 zones, plus 4 to minus 4. Uh, what is the final, uh, how many pixels can I put here? So this total resolution is x resolution times the theta resolution. In a traditional camera, 900 is just your x resolution. But now we're going to also try to capture the theta variations in the same number of pixels. So we know that our theta resolution is 9. So x resolution is 100. So, which means that our image is only going to be 100 pixels. They're going to be only 100 pimples. And for each pinhole, I'm going to get an image under it where you have many pieces. And from this 100 times 9 image, which is 900 pixels, I can create a light field where the space resolution is 100 and the angle resolution is 9. And uh, what's the what's the disadvantage? One is that you lose resolution. What's the other thing that's wrong here? Light. You lose light, right? Because all the light that's falling through, going through this uh, opaque area is completely lost. It's like looking through multiple pinhole cameras. It's like looking at the world through an area of holes. So most of the light is lost. In this case, you know, let's say out of nine pixels, one pixel is open, then one. Only one ninth of the light is being captured. 
for the gate time for the light cost. So that's a big problem. Um, but still, conceptually, this is very key. Because you can say, okay, I want to capture uh, space, uh, space variation as well as angle, angle variation. So I'm just going to chop my word into 100 pin holes and 9 uh, uh, angle discretized uh, angle spaces and I'm going to capture the 9 pixels and so on. So it's a very clean, simple model. But in the real world, this is very inefficient. It's just like for a camera, we always think about a pinhole model, pinhole camera model. But in the real world, you can use the lens and more things. Now, so let me ask you this. I mean, uh, can you really construct this in such a way that as you go to the end of the, I mean, your X, right? I mean, aren't you wasting part of the nine, you know, uh, spatial samples that you have? You mean at the top or the bottom? Yeah, because maybe, you know, you can't actually have this phone opening over the, the entire set. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, as long as you're, uh, this is your sensor, and you can create a pinhole that can capture light from different directions. You're okay with not having it. I think you might, what you may be thinking about is that this pinhole at some angle will become really opaque. You won't be able to see through it. Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, what I'm saying is that maybe through this particular angle, the uh -huh. phone doesn't spend the whole nine pixels you have behind it. Oh, that's a, okay. That's a good point. You're leading me to the next question, which is this spacing here. What is magical about the spacing? Because if you don't have right spacing, you'll get those problems. Okay. What needs to happen in the spacing so that you actually capture all these 900 values? Yes? The, the images should not overlap behind the exactly. On, on the sensor. Exactly. So if you think about the blob that's, that's coming through from top to bottom, you know, there will be some blob here. If you see the blob that's coming through here, These blobs are just barely touching each other. So here we have theta equals plus 4, uh, 3, 0, 1, minus 4. And then the next one is theta equals plus 4. Right? So it's, it's flipped, remember. Yes. It's going from minus 4 to 4. Here's going to go from minus 4 to 4. Right? Now, if I move this pinhole further or back, you're going to get some interesting arguments. Let's say I move this pinhole a little bit forward. And I'll just take one pinhole for now. And everything else is the same. Now the bomb is larger. Right? If I place a pinhole at the same, I place a pinhole exactly 9 pixels away. If I can put it exactly 9 pixels away, the rays on the top will start interfering. Right? So this blob here will start interfering with this blob here. And there's an overlap. So that's one issue. What happens if it's too close? If instead of moving further away, it gets too close, there will be a space between those blobs. Is that clear? So if it's too if it's too close, you'll get a blob here, and you'll get a blob here, and some pixels will be wasted. So this is this is a very important point, and this is related to the numerical aperture or the f-star. 
of lens. So, and then stop of the lens. Again, photographer's terminology, I don't like it, <coughs> but uh, it's easy to think about it, is the F number is simply the ratio of the diameter of the lens with the distance to the sensor. So it's a, it's a diameter, uh, and it's your distance. So the relationship between the two is just C over D. So if you have a, and remember the diameter is in the, in the denominator, which means that as you have a larger lens, the F number actually goes um, less. So let's take a concrete example. Let's say my uh, let's say my uh, lens has a uh, diameter of 25 millimeters, and my focal length and distance is about 50 millimeters. Then the f, f number is what? 50. So that's the f number. Um, does anybody know what's the f number of the so if you can see that if I make my uh, diameter half, okay, so it's for 25 millimeter, I have 12.5 millimeter. Then what do I get here? I get 50 divided by 12.5, so that's 4. So the F number of a 12.5 millimeter lens with a 50 millimeter focal length is 4. Now from 2 we jump to 4. Uh, what should we do to jump from 2 to 2.8? This is where the photographic terminology gets written. But maybe some of your photographers. Yes, multiply by 1.4. Multiply by 1.4. Okay, that's not easy. <laughs> how do you, to go from 2 to 2.0, 8, you multiply by 1.4. How do you get 1.4? Square root of 2. Okay. So, uh, what should we do? Okay. Uh, what should we do? 1.4142. something, right? As far as the photographs are concerned, it's, it's 1.4. Problem. We like to think about precise numbers and this problem, and it becomes even bigger problem as you go from there. Anyway, so why, where are we getting the square root of 2? If you go from, instead of 12, when you go from 25 to 12.5, the amount of light that's collected by this disk versus this disk is related by one factor. Factor of 4. Right. The diameter is decreasing by factor of 2, but the area is decreasing by factor of 4. Okay. Now, if you want, so 4 times less light coming in. On the other hand, if you want to go from 25 to some other diameter, so that you get half the length, what should you do? You should divide 25 by square root of 2, whatever that is. Um, 
Eugene, something like that. And if I go to the sort of, let's say it's 18.7. Is that fair? Okay. 18.7. I'm being imprecise here. But maybe somebody can calculate me. So when I go from here to here, by square root of 2 in diameter, I get half the length. And that's what photographer means to go by, go down by 1f stop. Okay. So when you go down by f, 1f stop, are you going from 2 to 3? Are you going from 2 to 4? What are you doing? It's such an imprecise terminology. Going down by f, 1f stop means going from 2 to 2.8. It's completely unnecessary confusion. Okay. So just get rid of this terminology altogether. Okay. And if you really want to think about uh, the reason why it's, it's, it's worthwhile in thinking about the ratio of diameter to uh, uh, diameter to uh, the photo lamp is about the amount of light. Okay. And can you tell me why that's the case? So let's say I have a 25 millimeter lens with a 2.5 uh, sorry 50 millimeter uh, focal length versus let's say I have a uh, I don't know. Uh, a 5 millimeter lens with a uh, 10 millimeter focal. This system and this system have the same exact f number, which is 2. Here it's 50 by 25, here it's 10 by 5. So both of them have the same f number. What's constant between the two? angle here. This angle is same in both systems. And this is critical because when you are looking at the world, you want to say at a given pixel, over what cone am I receiving light? And so that's a very important factor when you think about how many photons you want to capture. Because the angle, the cone of angle over which you are collecting the light determines how bright the pixel is. And it certainly helps you to think in terms of ratios or the angles. Other than that, the rest of the terminology is very Okay, what happens after 4? What's the next F number? 5.6. What do you think 4 times square root of 2 is? It's nowhere close to 5.6. It's probably uh, whatever, 1.4 times 4, so it's 4 point, sorry, uh, yeah, uh, 5.64 something, something. Getting more and more imprecise, and as you can imagine, as you go further away, you know, you, so this is the same confusion between, you know, whether a megabyte is 1000 kilobytes or 1024. Actually, it's even more confusing. And I heard a, a very interesting story at Akamai uh, when the when the economy was not doing so well. Uh, in the contract, they had said, you know, we will charge you this much for each megabyte or each gigabyte. Um, and when you're at a kilobyte, the difference is very small. That is less than two percent. Thousand versus thousand and four. But as it goes larger, the gigabyte, the terabyte, the difference between you know, the power of 10 and power of 2 is actually significant. <laughs> so this woman, you know, wakes up one day and says, you know what? We need to charge people by the bytes, 
the, the good to the power, not ten to the power. And several so they, you know, the revenue increased by like 1.4%. <laughs> and uh, so the, the same kind of problem is creeping in here. That by treating square root of 2 as 1.4, you know, it starts getting more and more confusing as you, as you go on. And then, as you know very well, after 5.6, you, you know, you start jumping, you have 8 and you know, 11 and 22, and then, and they're not square root of 2 anymore. You just get too much confusing. So just, just ignore all this. This is the most confusing thing. Going down by F stop is actually going from 2 to 2. Uh, photography is cool, but charger is bad. Um, so, what we're trying to do here is our angle here, right, is decided by this ratio of diameter to focal uh, length. And the angle here is this, uh, again a ratio of the blob to this distance. Okay? So, let's call this C1, and let's call this C, and this is L. Okay. So what we want is the ratio of D, sorry, C to D to be equal to the ratio of L to your blob size. And if that is matched, then all your blobs are going to just barely touch each other. If it's not matched, then either you'll get overlap or you will get analysis. That's, that's the basic kind of math behind a light again. So it's great conceptually, but as we know, it's going to block into the light. Uh, and I guess pinhole called diffraction issues, we haven't talked about it, but uh, uh, has anybody done here pinhole photography? So what are the problems you face when you're doing pinhole photography? Since there's so little light, so little light, so exposure time. Exposure time is very long, mm -hmm. and and image quality. Blurry because uh, you could never have it in small. Point. Exactly, so the image is blurred because of diffraction. So if you if you really take a pinhole, then light comes in, and it actually doesn't go in straight line. It actually bends a little. Uh, and uh, because of that, the single point in the world doesn't map to a single point on the sensor, but it maps to a, a small blur. And this is very similar to the analogy of you know, just using a water hose. If you have a water hose and it's open, water comes in, and you get you know, almost the same, uh, same thickness, same width of the water flow. Right? But as you start shrinking this, Eventually, the water just starts spraying up. Okay. When the size of your opening in the in the water hose becomes comparable to the molecules of water, it actually starts spraying up, and that's diffraction as well. Okay. And we have the same principle here. We have, in, in very simple words, we have photons coming in here with certain wavelength. What's the wavelength of uh, green light? 500 nanometers. Remember these numbers. They are very, very, very critical. So, 400 to 700 is blue, green, and this is nanometers. It's 10 to the minus 9 meters. 
So if the light, uh, the light is 500 nanometers, which is 0.5 micrometers, um, and your pinhole starts becoming about one millimeter, which is 1,000 micrometer, then you are probably okay. But if you start going, you know, millimeter and below, which is what you saw from cameras are, fortunately, if you start getting to 500 microns, which is half a millimeter, then your wavelength is comparable to the size of your pinhole, and you start getting this diffraction artifacts. The relationship between the size of the opening and the size of the wavelength uh, decides the interaction. And the formula actually is very easy. This one here is simply um, um, lambda by a. So if the aperture is a, this angle here is going to be done. In radians, is lambda by a. It's a very simple formula. We won't be talking about it too much in this class, right? in this lecture. Later on, we'll talk about it. But that gives you an indication of how quickly the light is training up. So, in the worst case scenario, when you have the pinhole the same size as the wavelength of light, so let's say you created a pinhole whose width is also 500 nanometer or 0.5 micrometer, what will be the output that? One radian. One radian is how many degrees? 57 degrees. So this cone will be 57 degrees. So, you know, it's out of question. Even if you can just do calculations, and even if you plug something that's 1000, 1 millimeter, so that's 1000 micrometers, the angle is still pretty, pretty, pretty wide. And that's why you get and so when camera makers are selling you uh, lenses, uh, you know, really crappy lenses on a, on a mobile phone camera, but uh, they're giving you a sensor resolution of 5 megapixels and 10 megapixels, uh, it doesn't make sense because your image is already blurred. You don't need that many. So if uh, other way to think about that is, Can your camera capture all this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, you should just take photos later. Mm -hmm. um, if your if your cell phone camera has a, a typical um, uh, aperture size of say two millimeters, that's generous. It's usually smaller than that. Uh, and then you have your sensor light comes in. And we're kind of zooming in into the world now, and it kind of spreads out. And let's say it spreads out over only about twenty micrometers. The pixel of a camera is about five micrometers. Each pixel. So if the blur is already 20 micrometer, it doesn't make sense to have a pixel that's that small. You should just have a pixel that that large to capture that. So if someone's selling you a, uh, a 10 megapixel camera with a five micron pitch, they should just give you something that's much lower resolution than that because you know the numbers don't make any sense. But again, this is a typical marketing gimmick um, camera makers will use where they will sell really high resolution sensor 
although clearly you cannot really capture uh, that big a uh, solution. So, and there's a new trend. I think camera makers have started selling in terms of megapixel rays. And now they have to start selling cameras with low resolution. I think the latest Canon has low resolution than its previous version. I believe the G6. I think it's good 12 megapixel. What the release now is only 10 megapixels. <laughs> because they realize it doesn't make sense to just keep boosting the megapixels when the aperture and the lens is not changing that much. So recently I was working on a project where they want to capture 50 gigapixel. 50 gigapixels, 50 times 10 to the 9. This is usually 2 times 10 to the 6 pixels. And uh, as, the, as the megapixels increase, uh, the size of the, as you can see this ratio here, right? Uh, as the megapixels increase, the size of the lens required increases correspondingly. Okay, and that's why expensive cameras have much bigger lenses, much wider Calculate that is 
by taking the witness position as Moshe. Okay, so we were talking about Pinhole, then we started talking about how uh, pinholes are not great because they lose light, uh, exposure times are too long, and the image is blurred. And all those problems are going to appear here as well. It's just that what we have created here is an array of uh, 100 virtual cameras. Okay. So 100 virtual cameras where each camera has a pixel of a resolution of 9 pixels. So we have converted one big camera into 100 cameras, each with 9 pixels. And in the real world, it will be 10,000 cameras. 100 by 100, each with resolution of 9 by 9 pixels. That's what makes it interesting. From one camera, now we have created 100,000 cameras. And as we saw last time, you can do it at home. Just for printing it. So, just like in uh, regular cameras, we don't use pinholes, we use lenses. We want to replace each of these pinholes now with lenses. And that's why we call it a lens lit array. So I'm just going to draw on top of this with a, with a different color. The music gets too complicated. Okay? I'm just going to draw the lens here. Right? And it's going to do almost the same task. We know that at the center of the lens, you can just move the rays and they just go straight. Right? Because remember, a lens is made up of sets of prisms. And the middle one is just a sheet of glass. So when it goes to the center, nothing changes. Things you would remember. When you use the lens light, we can do the same thing. Uh, but there is one very special two actually very special constraints we had to achieve to, to make this happen. Because it's a lens, and we're trying to form an image. When we're when really like the camera, what we're doing really is forming an image of the lens on the sensor. You remember we had this concept of a conjugate plane, a point in 3D and its corresponding location uh, on the sen uh, sensor position is for conjugate location, the, the corresponding each other. And here what we want to do is create a lens which forms an image of the lens on the sensor. So I to choose its focal length and its distance says in such a way that if I put a point here, I get a sharp image of that point here. Because there are about nine thetas. And each theta here has to map to one exact pixel. Okay. So that, make, that makes it extremely difficult because now we're almost in a microscopic world. I have to create this lenses extremely high quality so that an image of a point kept at about 50 millimeters is formed at some, some pretty small distance, usually one well below one millimeter. It's about 500 microns. So this, this becomes very challenging. This is a very specific constraint. There's exactly one plane in which I can put the sensor. If I put it too far here, then the image of the lens of the sensor will be blurred. If I put it too close, again the image will be blurred. Okay. And that very special constraint makes building a light field camera out of lens lights extremely challenging and very expensive. So let's say 
you you by the way all these things we talked about where if you put the lens like uh, you can put the lens a little bit further out right uh, and change its focal length so that this one is still imaged here but conceptually it's still a pinhole so if you, if you put the lens over here and the ratios of this to this is not matched to this to this then you will get over and if you put it too close and change the focal length correspondingly you will get dark spots so we still have to worry about standard submissions. So there's additional thing you have to do, which look a lot of people forget, which is if there's some point There's some point here out in the world, which we call X again, this is X again, right? And what we're trying to do is this point is in focus over here, and then we're going to chop this into nine rays, nine ray bundles, which are equals plus four, which are equals minus four, and the one that goes to the center is the value of in focus. And what we have done is we have captured the light field of this particular object. Um, if I want to create uh, a light field at a slightly different level over here, question is can be mostly complete. Remember, we, said we, we made this claim that if I capture this 4D light field, I can do anything I want. I can focus here, I can focus there. You know, I can reduce the light, I can change the aperture size, I can change the focal length, I can do anything I want if I capture that particular light. So one question you'll be kind of thinking about when you are um, when you are uh, doing this assignment is given that you have captured light for one particular plane, how do you recreate it at a different plane? Either by refocusing it or something. What's the difference between this situation and the assignment that you're doing? Because you're using array of cameras. And we the last time realized that a lens is what? It's an array of pimples with, with prisms. I can chop the lens as You can think of a lens which you can chop it up and you can treat it the same as these pinholes. Right? With corresponding to something next to it. In this case just a sheet of glass. It's a pinhole plus a prism. When you take a picture with a camera array, unfortunately you don't have to do that computation. All you have is a set of cameras. Thanks. All you have is a set of cameras. You don't have to prism. And mathematically, you're going to shift the image, which is equivalent to putting the prism. So you're going to take top images and you're going to shift them by plus two pixels, plus one pixel, 0 pixel, minus 1 pixel, minus 2 pixel. 
and that's the same as putting a set of prisms. Is this analogy clear? Alright, so once we have done all this, these two classic ways of thinking about uh, uh, capturing light field, again, 1908 is when this you know, idea started coming up, more than 100 years ago. But the practical solutions came much later. You know, remember, back then it was about film, quite challenging. Um, we want a third solution that came out just two years ago of capturing light field. We're going to look at that for the next few minutes and then switch over to uh, Anybody has uh, thoughts on some other ways of capturing light field? Maybe fourth one. Mm -hmm. Yes? I think this is a paper last year in Singapore, but we have a LCD sure. uh -huh. and just all the effects Excellent, excellent. So, you know, you can come up with lots of hacks to kind of go around this. So one very interesting hack uh, these guys came up with was they said, I don't want to put anything close to the sensor. I will just take a traditional camera and uh, erase some part of it. I'm going to erase this part up here. Because all I care about is at this pixel, I want to know how each of these rays, what is the radius of each of these rays. So all I will do is I will block this part of the lens and take a full photo. Okay? And that will give me this duration for each pixel. Okay? Then I'll take a second photo where I will block everything except this region and take a photo. And if I take nine such photos, then instead of getting 100 times 9, what will I get? You do 9 pictures. Each has a resolution of 900 pixels. So you'll get 900 times 9. This is over time. And this is the single x pixels. x and 9 times x. So this is what uh, the set of paper was about. And, uh, they, they came up with better methods to mix it, but that was the basic concept. Okay, but this is really not—it's not a new method because it's using the same basic concept that we block rays. So, so the pinhole versus lens thread is a different solution. Uh, yes, something of your own. Yeah, okay. What else? Think about all the work the, you know, in that document or in that presentation about what you want with new ideas. One way to think about it, think about all the hammers you have, all the knobs you have. On a camera you have a knob of exposure time, focus, focal length, you know, moving the camera, wavelength. Think about all the ways you can use those parameters to reach the scope. So this is called in that uh, x to next is called x down. And you know what it means. Yeah. So we should now that the image captures the plane, the plane. So you use that to Why does it have to be a plane? Yeah. It could be something else. So exactly. What would what should it be? Uh, okay. So then you have a sphere. Uh -huh. 
I don't know, some kind of a concave or convex sphere. Similar sort of thing in Remember, CAT scan machine works on almost the same principle we saw it last time. In a CAT scan machine, it is straight. The sensor is on a cylindrical surface. Or if you're thinking of doing some you know, uh, non-interfering uh, optical communication, Sam is interested in this. You, know, you do the same thing. Now, phosphocytos are coming from different directions. I want to demultiplex them and recover them uh, with a you will put an array of antennas. How about creating a, a light switch antenna? A bigger project. Uh, in simulation. Okay. So, so let's think about this third solution, which is uh, a relatively simple idea to explain actually. Uh, what we're going to do is not use lensed array, but use a pinhole array. I'll show you how this works and then I'll explain why it works. All we're going to do is place a mask. Instead of a pinhole array, we're going to place a mask that has certain transparencies. So here instead of pinhole array, there's going to be basically some, if I plot its transparency, it's going to have some strange pattern. We print this film and put it instead of pinhole array. And if you do that, it turns out, uh, you'll get a picture that is like this. Uh, and if you look at the parts that are out of focus, you'll have this really strange encoding. For parts that are out of focus, it looks like the light has been attenuated to the student a little bit. But, you know, they are the same. I think it's slightly better here than over there. You can see it. Uh, but for out of focus, this is really strange. Okay. And I'll, I'll summarize how, it, how it's computed and then come back and explain why it works. And all we're going to do is take a, the, you know, if you take a traditional camera and take a true photo, if you take any image in general, um, and just take its Fourier transform, which is what JPEG compression will do as a very first step, you realize that most of the energy in this Fourier transform is in the low frequencies. In 2D, you put low frequencies in the center. In one day, you put the low frequencies at the left edge. Uh, if, if it's, uh, so most of the energy is in uh, low frequencies, low spatial frequencies. So in the center you have the DC component, which is the average of all pixels, um, and then you have you know first frequency, which is how many sinusoids you can throw to this image, and so on. Okay. Most of the energy is over here. If you place this very high frequency mask where the where the pinhole was, and then take this two D Fourier transform, it looks really really strange. Has a uh, lot of energy in high frequencies as well. Mm -hmm. And those of you who are used to looking at, uh, you know, oscilloscope for radio frequencies and, and, and so on, uh, if you just capture the radio waves or the radio stations and look at the spectrum, it will also look something like this. You will have some carriers in the middle, and there will be a band 
out of the carrier and there will be a guard back. Right? So 99 megahertz station is transmitting some audio for about 20 kilohertz around it. 100 megahertz stations transmitting audio 20 kilohertz around it and so on. So this is how the spectrum will look like. Just capture any telecommunication signal. And something similar is happening here. Um, and I'll come back to this and explain how this exactly works now. So and what we're going to do eventually is take the 2D Fourier transform, which looks like this, and we're going to shift, we're going to take this 2D world and make it into a 4D world, a 4D hypercube. Um, and we're simply going to take this inverse Fourier transform and recover all those images that you would have captured if you place the camera at different positions. It's as if we have taken the lens and split it into 81 different cameras. Uh, and as you can imagine, from this 81 cameras, now we have captured, for, so for every Every one of those slices on the lens, we have captured an image that's only 200 pixels by 200 pixels. But we have created 81 such pictures. And so here, you are just seeing some of those 81 pictures, few of the 81 pictures. But using this 81 camera array, the, the box I showed you last time was a 5 by 5 camera array. And you can think of this as an 81 camera array. But we didn't have to build a new device. It's just an ordinary SLR camera, medium format. And we just placed this mask that's it. And suddenly we have, you know, for two extra dollars, we have now 81 cameras. But of course, each of them is very good. What's the advantage of this uh, mask to a pinhole, uh, or a pinhole mask? So the question is, what's the benefit of this type of mask over a pinhole array? What's the answer? What are the disadvantages of more light because it's continuous. Right. So it's, it's more light because the, the almost 50% of the light will go through. Okay. Okay. So previously it was a big hole area, so very little light was going through. What's the second problem? Yeah. Which you get from the pinhole may not establish, but this you can actually reconstruct the original. Exactly. If you have a pinhole area, you have a lot of diffraction artifacts. Even here you'll have some diffraction artifacts, but they won't be as so it's basically similar to the lens, the lens library. Exactly. But after computation, what you capture looks like almost an ordinary image, except those very strange effects are out of the space. So but you're saying you're applying the inverse transform uh, to the small sessions of this uh, uh, spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. No, not so really. Not really. We're going to take this, to pad we're this full 2D image, and we're going to style it and create a 4D hypercube. So let's, let's make it simple. Let's say the image was only 1D, just this horizontal line here. Okay. Okay. If you take this uh, frequency transform, actually I have a Okay. If you take the frequency transform, you know you will capture. There will be some 1D frequency transform that looks like this. Okay. And what we're going to do is uh, so let's let's go step by step. So in the frequency domain, this will be a little bit of a uh, Stepping ahead, we'll come back and talk about coding techniques in, in a couple of lectures, and this will become more clear at that time. But basically, we have some variation in x and some variation in theta, right? We saw that. In this case, it was 100 by 9. In 
this case it's uh, 200 by 9. Uh, that's 200 by 9 actually. 200 by 9. We're just thinking in 1D now. Uh, and then our sensor, however, is just 1D in this case. So although we want to capture 200 here and 9 here, we cannot capture them on this 1D sensor. So what we basically do is take that 1D sensor. We're going to take that 1D sensor and it's going to capture different parts of this signal. And then we're going to reshape it. We're going to chop. We're going to chop this part and put it here. Chop this part, put it here. This one stays the same place. Take this part, put it over here, and take this part, put it over here. And now from a 1D signal, we have created a 2D like field. Okay. And it may not be immediately clear on the side because we don't look at coding scheme. And from that, we can recover. All right, so, so you have all the coefficients for the entire image. Exactly. Whole calibration for that entire image. Yes. What about the reason? Sorry? Uh, frequency domain aliasing? Yes. So, okay, we'll talk about that. If you think about this particular problem where we had overlap or undershoot, that's also a type of aliasing. Right? Because we're trying to capture more signal, but we don't have enough bandwidth yes. here. And it's the same exact problem here as well. So you have to assume that the scene doesn't have, you know, very high special frequencies, otherwise there will be alias and mass better as low frequencies. But does it mean that you do you can only so you, you hope to recover only 200 pixels in the world. Here, it's very sensitive. Yeah, you have to hope that you have to hope that your spectrum looks something like this. Yes. If your spectrum actually had a lot of energy up here and down there, then yes, you get a lot of failures. No, I mean that you can separate this signal with much lower frequency than it's actually separate, right? I repeat that. You, you can separate it in, in much lower frequency uh -huh. than in, actually in single uh, separate. Using what? Using compressor sensing? Using two million. No, just separate it in low frequency. Just take this. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what happens in JPEG, right? You take whatever 4 megapixel image, Yes. And then you're able to represent it as you know half a megapixel image, yes. because you're able to take only the lower frequencies, uh, lower special frequencies, and represent them well. And you take the higher frequencies, but you don't represent them that well. That's how JPEG or the traditional frequency domain compression works. So you assume, but we cannot do that in the real. We cannot do that, do that in optics. Yes, you know you can do it in software. So here is a method to you know, do that, not the compression, but the remapping. So you assume the signal is over-circled? Yes, exactly. So if the world actually had a checkerboard, extremely high resolution checkerboard, then you have problems. It's a similar effect, you know, if somebody is wearing really fine structure and you take the picture, you see this areas in artifacts, or if you, have, if you take a fence, very high resolution, take a picture, you get this strange effects. So it's, it's, a, it's the same problem here. So, yeah, it's just sampling here. You cannot get around areas in that easily, unless you do the pre-filtering. I won't go into the detail. So Ramesh, do you have to apply this to each channel? You to, yeah, you have to do it for every color channel. That's right. Yeah. And from that you have captured it. So, so let's look at the intuition of how exactly uh, this works. Um, and there's a frequency domain explanation that 
many of you have uh, many of you have seen. Uh, and I'm going to give you a very simple intuitive uh, reasoning of, of falsehoods. Okay. So let's come to this problem of replacing a pinhole with um, this new type of mask, which we call heterodyne So here we had a pinhole, and now this part again. The pinhole, and we had nine values coming in. Theta equals minus four. Theta equals four. And then we took the next step over, right? And this was doing the same thing again. And by by using this trick, we're not going to get more solution. We still have to you know, miss some information in the middle. It's just that we don't lose the light. We just lose those uh, special frequencies. So small digression, and we're going to talk about something called Hathamard multiplexing. Okay. The problem is very easy to explain in, in this particular. Let's say I give you um, there, are, there are several bags with different weight. Okay. Weight 1 to weight 9. And I tell you to weigh them, and at the end, I want a solution of each, what the weight of each of the bags. Simplest method is you take the weighing scale, you know, put each of the bags one at a time, and you have a solution. What are some other ways you can do it? If you don't want to do one at a time, probably. Do all of them, but that doesn't give you, you cannot decompose it into nine. You must make nine measurements. I'll, I'll leave you that out. You must make nine measurements. One choice is you just put one bag at And you have nine values, one of them But let's say your scale actually, so let's say the, the weight is from zero to 100. Okay. Sorry, the weight itself is zero to 10. But let's say your scale doesn't work very well uh, in the in the first couple of pumps, first couple of pages. Statement. Okay, so the scale works pretty well when you know it's in the it's in the linear phase. Okay, but it doesn't work so well when the weight is too low or weight is too high. So what you want to do is stay in the linear range somewhere here. And cameras work the same way as far now. If the light is too low, if the light is too high, the camera cannot figure out the exact distance. But if the light is between, if the value is going from 0 to 55, then when it's between 50 to 200, the camera works nice in a straight line, straight line response. But if it's too dark or too bright, the camera cannot handle it. And the similar analogy uh, we do. So one solution is to one at a time. The other solution is I can put a group of them. Okay. Let's start with really simple example of three. Let's say I have three of them. I can put one at a time, or I can put two at a time. First I can do W1 plus W2, then I will do W2 plus W3, 
and now it will do W1 plus W2. Okay. If I take these three measurements, from the three measurements, I can figure out what each of those ones are. Okay. And you can actually write this down as a very simple linear system. Uh, I will say that so we will say when I put the first two, my measurement is M1, two, and this M3. And all we have done here is we have said I made three measurements, M1, M2, M3. What I would like to know actually is the weights, W1, W2, W3. But the way I have measured it is the first one is W1 plus W2 and not W3. Second one is W2 and W3 and not W1. And same okay. That's how we use A equals B. And we just call that in the system. And we can tell you from those three measurements what the correlation measurements were. As simple as that. And it's very simple, it's one on zero, it's not one half or more, purely in other So, for three, this seems like a, a very good solution because now we're staying somewhere in the middle range. We are not at the bottom range of this weight, and we are, if you put all three of them together at the same time, you might go you know, very far over here as well. We're staying mostly in the middle range here because we're taking the sum of the two weights of this. So, this is very convenient. And Hadamard multiplexing is basically the same concept. Instead of taking three, now if I have nine or n such measurements, I'm going to basically take about half of them randomly. Uh, and I'll take about half of the bags, put them together, make a measurement. Then I'll put them apart. Again, take some other half uh, and do some measurements and so on. So if I have nine of these, I will create a matrix that looks something like this. I will have, I want to measure nine weights, but we want to go to nine. My measurements are N1 through N9. Okay. And what will we have here? What's the size of the measurement? Sorry? Nine by nine. Nine just like we put down the numbers here, we're going to put some random numbers here. Instead of doing, instead of putting all the bags, that would be called putting all the ones. Or, okay, let's have that. If I just put one bag at a time, what will this matrix look like? Let's go back here. Okay. It'll be just one, one, one. And that's what we're going to be zero. Okay. As simple as that. And same thing would be here along the diagonal. But if I do this for about multiplexing, out of the nine, I mean, usually I will have roughly four or five bags placed together. I'll put randomly one, zero, one, one, zero, zero, five, seven, eight, nine. Right? So I'll put, I don't know, zero, one, zero, zero. That's one sequence. And then I'll take the next one. Zero, one, whatever sequences. I'll have nine such random sequences. There are about four or five of ones on the first And this is how the one multiplexing works. That's the first So instead of taking one measurement at a time, we're going to take a linear combination. In this case, just a sum of about half the quantities. 
And the benefit of that is that you're staying in a range that's data confidence. I use the analogy of this one with where we're going. Using a pinhole is like doing one measurement at a time. You're only measuring one grade at a time. Using a less slide is like putting all the bags at the same time. And what we're going to do now is place a mask wherein only about half the values are going to go through, half the range of values. Okay, so you're putting only half the input variables and measure it out. You see the analogy where this is going? Can anybody predict what the pattern will be? Okay, so let's focus on this one slab here. We just focus on one slab here. Light comes in, two, and three. Instead of nine, we just take three. Instead of just blocking this light here and here, okay, what I will do is I'll block it from certain directions. So let's say I will make this, uh, actually for three it doesn't look as interesting. So let's go to five. I'll make it one, one, um, one, zero, one, uh, zero, zero. It's a two out of one, which is about half. What's going to happen is, for certain part of the image, if you look at the pixel here, I shoot the, this is my lens, this is my pixel, if I shoot the ray here, it's blocked. But if I shoot the ray here, it goes through. And if I shoot the ray here, it's again blocked. Okay. So what I'm getting at this pixel is not sum of all the rays, but some limited combination of this. If I go to the next one, I get some other combination because for this one, this one was blocked. But for this one, this goes through. But now this one is blocked. And so on. Because of this displacement, the combination that you're getting is that you shift. And once you have done this linear combination, which is what we have here, about half the light goes through. But what we have received here is a linear combination. We have this measurements. We don't have the original ray intensities. But by simply calculating it, we recover these intensities and we are ready to go back to a traditional so That's a very easy way of, very intuitive way of thinking about how we can use other one multiplexing with a light Again, this motion. So we get uh, half the light, students half the light, but you know, it's glass half empty or half full. In this case, we just have you know, half full glass. And it's very easy to get those two dollars. You put the mask in and the light can always get to Fortunately, you have to do a lot of computation on this inversion for the whole image. If your image is 16 megapixel, this matrix could be 16 million times 16 million. Do it in a brute force fashion. Um, but of course, you use smarter methods like this to make techniques. You do this inversion using spectral methods or some other fourier projection based methods to make it very interesting. So, we won't go into the inversion, but we're going to state the problem as A equals B and uh, say that it's possible to do it for
That's a very good question. So what I showed you, I kind of cheated you, right? I showed you a mask that looks like uh, that looks like uh, Kosan. Uh, and what we've recently realized, just in the last one year, is that Hatamar and cosine is one and the same thing. So if you take a bunch of cosines, and it's a frequency domain projection, by the way. So that's why that's what we have here. So if you take cosines of different frequency, so this is like taking the DCP, right? When you take a when you compress an image, you take projections on different frequencies. What we're doing is we are projecting on um, um, again different carriers and so on, right? So if we do, I guess that's what it's called. Yeah, it's uh, If I do um, cosines, right, and then I'm going to make them sharper and sharper. Right. If I place all of them together, you start getting that pattern. In the center, you get a bright spot. And away from you, you get a dark spot. The sum of all this, as you can imagine, ends up being something like the repeat, and then some variation, and then the repeat, and some variation. So I think that's the pattern you see. And it turns out we can place these cosines in such a way so that you actually get a binary pattern. And Matt will very briefly talk about, talk about it, um, of how you can actually create a binary pattern and achieve the same exact. And so something that we studied before and we realized it's a very minor contribution, but it's very useful because printing a binary mask, as you can imagine, is more convenient than printing a mask where the passive is changing in expression. And when you uh, phrase it as a linear system, there's no I mean no different, no sense in having, you know, blocking half of the light or so. I mean partially with uh, you know, partial transparency you could just go binary anyway. Yeah, exactly. If you go binary, it's easy to express, yeah. but you're still going to lose half the light. Yeah, yeah. Zeros are going to pop up all this. Yeah, but I'm saying instead of using ones using, say, 0.75 or so, I mean, uh -huh. it's still see That's a great point. So let me let me rephrase what Professor uh, Olivier is saying. He's saying instead of ones and zeros, which means the sum of all this is still half of the total light, why not make this 1 and 0.75 and 1, 1, 0.75? So you still have this variation, but most of the light is going through. Um, and this is actually a great topic for research as to what exactly these patterns should be. And for us, binary was very convenient from zero. And if you actually play with that parameter space, you get you know many many different uh, interesting solutions. Some of them are geared more towards taking a 2D photo, and some of them are geared more towards capturing a light field. So, for example, if this was all ones, then you just got the ordinary photo. If this was all ones, that means every point is transparent which means there is no mask uh, If you put all zeros, that means it's a completely black field, nothing goes through. If you use this pattern, then it's a, it's a random pattern. But if you use any values in between, then again, you're optimizing the number of them. Yes? I guess Mm -hmm. 
So ideally you would like to do a lot of this processing purely in the optical domain, but you know, we don't have a pressure. The light is traveling at the speed of light, and we can only do blocking and unblocking. So if you had a way to kind of sense the image first, and once you have sensed the image, then change your mask so that you can choose the right parameters for the scene, uh, then what you're saying is true. Uh, so in case of in case of like software compression, you get to look at the signal before you compress. So I thought you it's not just based on the image, the image might have any kind of frequency of the frequency. Right. But you know that you have some number of sensors and you cannot capture frequency for them. So pre-filtering. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the scene is, but to them, anything. Right. You can put the sensor that matches your camera. Exactly. So the, the, what Dina is basically asking is, if I know that uh, my scene, instead of having 200 pixels uh, and 9 variations, so let's say I put a hologram. Okay. What I'm going to do is put a hologram here and then capture it right for you. And I'm going to assume that the hologram has exactly 200 pixels and I have nine views for each of those pixels, right? Then what I've done is built the correct system. But let's say somebody gave me a hologram which has actually 400 pixels and, uh, uh, and let's say, bright uh, number is going to be 300 pixels and then uh, only six views, right? I don't know a priori what you placed out there is 200 pixel hologram or a 300 pixel hologram, I will continue to decode that as a 200 pixel hologram. But the problem will be because the scene has higher frequencies, it will alias the same motion you're asking. And you have no idea of knowing it at all. So a typical solution in, in any signal processing, uh, any device that uh, is been sampling, is you pre-fit. You reduce the frequency by smoothing it or cutting off higher frequencies so that it will not being masquerade as uh, low frequencies. In the optical domain, unfortunately, it's very difficult to, to create a diffuser that will convert something that's 300 pixels to 200 pixels purely in optics. You can do it in software. You can, you know, you can smooth and filter the software, but it's not that easy to do in At least you don't have a solution. Maybe you will come up with a solution. Once you do that, then you can do it all this. No, no, they're going to be completely different. 
Okay. And remember, we have this very, very strong constraint that we must put this lens array so that the image of the lens is formed on the sensor. We don't have that anymore. Even if we have some, there are some slops, some tolerance in there exactly where to put the mask. Because all we're doing is we're taking the values you want to measure, we're going to mix them around and get new measurements and just start working. That gives us a lot of freedom. So if you go back to the example, to the analogy of nine bags, you know, instead of, uh, instead of, uh, you know, instead of doing a very specific combination of those nine bags, if I did a slightly different combination of the nine bags, my mixing matrix may not be most efficient, but it will be good enough to do a reasonable job of it. Okay. So that that gives you a, a lot of uh, flexibility in building this. So Matt is going to show you how we can use this heterogeneous technique. So so we're matched, but it seems that the binary mass may introduce some diffraction artifacts. They do. They do. Are you going to talk about that? Um, I'm not sure I got to that. Okay, that's fine. You, you can see the results in the movie. Yeah, and you know, just just again, just go slow because we just talked about it. So it's a bit okay, yeah. So. I